a couple more minutes? Uh, the menu? I can go on the fly if you know okay. what you want. I'm gonna have um, a broccoli and cheddar omelet, please. Yeah, absolutely, broccoli cheddar. What kind of toast do you like? Uh, what am I asking? Multigrain, white wheat rye, we have English muffins, biscuits, raisin toast, bagels. I was really fast. I'm, I'm impressed. So no, I'm impressed. I'm gonna have um, <laughs> rye. Rye, okay, perfect. Usually I get like halfway through the list and be like, stop, it's just too many. Yeah, we just sort of just like, it just flowed out. It's beautiful. <laughs> Good, okay, I'm glad you think so. As we sit here telling stories till it's quarter after three, the details are so gory, but that's how they're supposed to be. And this waiter must be wondering if we're ever gonna leave. What's happening, everybody? I'm John Kim Fay, and you are listening to Talking at the Diner the show where musicians and other creative types share their stories at the family restaurant of their choice, but few with the impressive list of bread options of Nudie's Cafe in Paoli, Pennsylvania, which is where I met up with today's special guest, Maggie Poulos, who herself is from a family that is in the diner business, as you'll hear in just a minute. But other than being a highly discerning diner diner, Maggie Poulos is fascinating because she is an example of a talented musician who is also deeply embedded in the business side of the music world. She's fronted numerous bands, such as the all-female trio, The Crushes, and as the founder of Mixtape Media, Maggie has done PR for such high-profile clients as Robert Plant and Alison Krauss, Cake, Fitz and the Tantrums, and Duncan Sheik, remember that that barely breathing guy? Since moving from New York back home to the Philadelphia suburbs, she has become the go-to publicist of the Philly indie rock scene, working with Mo Lauda and the Humble, Don McCluskey, some band known as the Caulfields. And most recently, she landed some amazing press for Queen of Fishtown, a fantastic one-woman show that I was fortunate to check out, partly in the spirit of research for my own off-in-the-ether one-man show, and partly because Maggie Poulos is just good company and a great conversationalist with strongly held beliefs and a passion for that thing called rock and roll, as you're about to find out. So... Without further delay, please enjoy my lunchtime chat with Maggie Poulos right now on Talking at the Diner. Everything is on the table when we're talking at the diner. I'm on a roll ordering Benedict's from diners, so I'm going to try it. Hey, man, you got your thing. We are not at a Greek diner, so I, I would probably get an online Greek diner, but a Greek diner is a little bit of a different experience for me. Yes. <laughs> I would imagine Being a Greek so. American <clears throat> whose grandparents owned a diner, and I'm sure you're familiar with this diner. It's on 2nd and Market Street. It's called the Continental. 
I've been to the Continental. I'm it's sure a great diner. <laughs> so, uh, tell I'm, me a little bit more about that. Uh, so you're. I'm Half Creek. Okay. Grew up here, mm -hmm. right, like two miles from here, three miles from here okay. in Berwyn, which is why I live here now because I have a child and my mom. That's helps where me. your parents. Yep. I, again, I prefer to be in the city, but this is where it is, and this is what we're doing. Yeah. Um, and it's not bad, you know. It's easy to get to the city. If it weren't, it would be an issue for me. Um, right. So my grandparents on my dad's side were Greek immigrants, and they owned a diner. Uh, I Okay, so it's just one generation removed yep. from people coming over mm -hmm. from Greece. Yeah, my dad is a first-generation American. He is the most American of his siblings because he's the youngest and, like, the most Americanized. Uh -huh. Like, they speak Greek pretty well. He does not. Um, right. My aunt married a Greek man. Uh, my uncle did not marry a Greek woman, but he raised his kids Greek Orthodox. We were raised Presbyterian because my mom is a wasp, so... Do you speak the language? Well, I can curse you out, like, 15 different ways, but I, I do write? not. <laughs> um, I don't, and, and it bums me out. I wish I did. That's, I wish I had that. It's so funny you say that, because... Um, I don't speak Korean, but I could always recognize when my mother was cursing me out in Korean. <laughs> or I'm sure you can ways. recognize Korean if you hear. Like oh, I can yeah, recognize Korean. I can Greek hear it. Yeah, absolutely. Anywhere, and I can't do a Greek accent, but I can do a great impression of my uncle Pete, and that's the Greek accent to me. Like, All right, just let's, hear, let's hear Uncle Pete right now. Come on. <laughs> I, I know he's like a diner guy. I feel like he can, like pop in here any minute. Uh, <laughs> uncle Pete. Uncle Pete is a whole other thing. Uh, so my parents met in high school. My my mother's parents were high school sweethearts and all four of their children married their high school sweethearts. Wow. So I have a very bizarre How like fairy tale. That's beautiful. Fairy tale, yeah. Totally like <laughs> what are you guys doing? <laughs> but they're boomers, so like, you know uh, okay. they don't know any better. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I have a lot of cousins and aunts and uncles and then I consider a lot of my family that's married in aunts and uncles and cousins because they're so, they've been around forever and they all grew up together and I, you know, so I have a nice, that's one thing that was attractive about coming back here is like, because it's just me and my daughter having a large extended family that's for her. Fantastic. Um, Something that I definitely never had and very, well, now very... You do. Now you do. It's well, different. <clears throat> it's, it's larger. It's like a friend of mine, when I was talking about meeting my brother and sort of describing like you know my niece and what happened with my sister who I never met um, she was like do you want to just dive in to just being in a whole new familial milieu or are you gonna like sort of like take it a little slow and I, I, I'm just the most interested in getting to know my brother and very interested in getting to know my niece because she's super cool. Like, I can already tell. That's great. You know, she's my age. She's got purple hair. That's she awesome. does, like, Comic-Cons and stuff with her husband. Nice. You know, I, so, I, I think she she said something like, well, I would have come up to, to visit with you, but I've got, like, a bunch of costumes to make this week and I just can't make it happen. <laughs> I'm like, that's, okay. that's the best excuse I've ever heard for anything. It's <laughs> pretty you amazing. Know, past granted, you know. And, you know, if you get this theater thing off the ground, you know, that there's your, there's your costume There's designer. my costume designer, exactly. That's exciting and wild and <laughs> awesome. I always love to talk to people about their families and how that kind of impacted 
you know, the decisions you made for your own life and stuff like that. Was your was your family very musical? Cause no. I, no? No? Okay. They are not. <laughs> you are the only one? I'm the only one. I have uh, some various and sundry cousins that play some different instruments, but I'm the only one who ever, like, performed and wrote, mm-hmm. write, continue to write. Um, and you pursued it. I mean, did a, you move to New York specifically way. to play in a band, or was there other stuff happening? Um, I moved there, at, you know, at the time. I graduated from college in 1999. We're going to date myself. I'm going to date myself right here. And then Please. at the beginning of 2000, I came home and lived here for a couple months, for maybe six months, earned some money, and was like, all right, my options, like I wanted to learn the business, but I also wanted to play. And I was like, the options really are New York, LA, a little bit of Chicago, and a little bit of Nashville. Then Nashville was just country and Christian music. Philly was not happening at the time. It wasn't, which was a bummer. I had interned at XPN um, in college, which, you know, has provided me with great relationships throughout my career and and to this day. Um, But there wasn't the scene that there is now. It was kind of this weird in-between time, which I'm sure you know, because you were... were, So what year did you... Uh, make the, that move. 2000. February 2000. 2000 okay. I moved so, to New York. Yeah. So there was like a little stuff happening in the 90s, but it wasn't enough for me, mm-hmm. industry-wise, to like, I was like, all right, I gotta go where things are happening. Now, it's a totally different game now because of the internet and how right. we work so removed from like, you can access people anywhere. You build your audience online, and it's quite different than, like, you needed, at that time, you needed to be in one of those places where the industry was to be seen. Um, that's how bands were being, mm-hmm. you know, and that's where all the the, the business, the industry was yeah. happening, right. you know, in these companies. As time's gone, time has gone on, people have started to spread out further and further, and New York, frankly, is unreasonable for any creative person. It was, I caught right. it at the very tail end of being able to live with roommates in Brooklyn and have that happen. Yeah, like you can't afford to live there. And I tell younger musicians that now. I'm like, look, Philadelphia is an ideal place to be. A, cost of living isn't so bad. B, the community is great. C, if you're really serious about being a musician, you need to be on the East Coast to tour if you really want to build that right. thing. It's very hard to tour from Los Angeles, in my humble opinion. It is very hard to tour from Nashville, and I also feel like Nashville is completely oversaturated. It is just as expensive as anywhere else, and how do you get seen there? Uh, my advice to, to artists who want to move there, I'm like, go spend two weeks at a time there. Do all the things. Take all the meetings. Do all the co-writes. Mm-hmm. But living there is going to be really hard to, to cut through yeah. any static there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't really... Again, I'm an East Coaster, so I have a hard time with the whole Southern vibe down there. A, <laughs> and, and, and B, like, I just don't think it is as musician-friendly as people want you to think. I think it is easier to collaborate and create here than it is there. There is mm-hmm. a very, it's much more of a business ex- exchange than well, it is. I wouldn't want to live there to do that. Right. I think it's fun to go yeah. do it. It's very fun to go. I love visiting. Yeah. I'm a little confused by the place, but I, I enjoy visiting. Like, I find it a bit, it's very odd that it's like the bachelorette capital of the world. I'm like, right, if I come to Nashville... I'm a musician, I work in the music industry, and I have friends that live here, so I'm going to do some music stuff. Well, if I was just visiting here, I'd visit my friends, I'd want to go to the Grand Ole Opry, I'd want to try and figure out how to get to the House of Cash, and do, like, you know, the music stuff. Right. If you're a bachelorette riding an eight-person bike getting drunk, like, why are you in Nashville? Like, I don't, I don't, I, don't, I can't put that together. It doesn't make sense to me. Because ultimately, while there are more liberal things happening in Nashville, it's still in Tennessee. It still feels very southern there. Yeah. Which to me is like a, a very like cagey feeling. Like I'm like, what's <laughs> happening? What's going on here? I don't like this. You're not down with the South. 
Well, I'm Tom with the uh, white supremacy of the South. Uh, well, hey, believe me, I kind of had this conversation or a similar conversation recently where I always have had great experiences down there. Like, I used to have a manager from Atlanta. I Who managed you in Atlanta? Uh, Lanny West. Lanny managed me circa 1998 through, like, 2003 so or so. Caulfields? Post so Caulfields? Post Caulfields. This is um, my John Faye Power Trip hero. Okay. So he came into my life. Awesome. And early Ike. So my experiences down there were always great. Um, and some of my best friends are from there. And I think that something that I always remind myself of when bad shit's going on in the South is that there's still like 45% of the population down there agrees with me. <laughs> you know, so it's 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 not just a southern thing it's it's just that there's more voices in the direction that maybe I don't agree with but it doesn't mean that people who do agree with me aren't there you know what I mean I have um, Atlanta's a great music city Mm -hmm. I have a few friends from there Um, it's a cool cool city I like Atlanta I haven't been there in a while, but I have been there a few times, and I've always thought it was very cool. I've always loved it. I haven't been back in a long time. it feels very northern to me. It feels I like guess in some city. ways, yeah. There are a lot of uh, expats <laughs> from the north. A lot of Yankees. It's a lot cheaper to live down there, too. I mean, I'm on it. It gets a little fancy, but I'm finding more people migrating from New York City to, like, Asheville, North Carolina. Or mm-hmm. You know, kind of different different spots. Asheville is a huge mm-hmm. town now. Mm-hmm. I've never been, but everything I hear about it seems amazing. Very artsy mm-hmm. and cool, and yes, mm-hmm. it, that's what I hear about it. And the venues down there are cool. Mm-hmm. I've had a lot of clients play down there. And I mean, there's you know, I think you can find good spots everywhere. I agree. Yeah. And I think you, for me, I'm happy to visit. But I want to stay up here. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would move maybe to LA because I have a lot of friends there. But if they, my friends were there, I'd, I'd absolutely not even entertain them. But I guess I'm a little bit set in my ways. I now. mean, talk to me more about that because I don't think I could ever live in Los Angeles, and I've spent a lot of time there. I will not be going to Los Angeles, but. Three of my very closest friends live there. Okay, so it'd be more for the personal connection right. you already have right. with people there. Right. And the weather. But yeah. truthfully, I think I'd get real tired of the nonsense that goes on out there fast. That's how I feel about it. <laughs> and also, being an East Coaster, we have a much different sense of urgency. And I think I would really, really struggle with the, like... <laughs> yeah chit chatty nonsense that goes on, yeah. on out there. Mm-hmm. And I'm, every time I go out there, I'm like, that's what I'm like, does anyone here work? Who, who goes to work here? Like, what's going on? Everybody's out at all times. You are very East Coast and you're... I am. I am an East Coaster. Um, I feel the same. I mean, I love going out West, like visiting my sisters. Where do they live? My one sister lives in the Bay Area. Yeah. So, and I've, I've spent a lot of time out there because... Um, I recorded uh, the first Caulfields album was done in Sausalito. Oh, nice. At, at? Actually, at the plant. 
Well, please. In, in studio. Why are we just talking about in, this now? In Studio B, where Rumors was recorded. Do you read Ken Kelly's book making Rumors? I do not read it, but I am familiar. I think you would get a huge like, kick out of it. Yeah. Because it's all there. Mm-hmm. Um, he... There's a, some of it that I found like a little tedious when he's talking about his own personal life. I'm like, that's cool. But let's go back to the part where Lindsay's playing the Naga Hyde Ottoman with the fat end of the drumstick and you're telling me where that's sitting in the song. Because yeah. that is what I want to read about. That is cool, yeah. What was that experience like? Was that amazing? Very. Um, How did you, as a band from here, get to do that? Well, it's kind of funny. The guy that signed us to A&M also signed the band uh, Dishwala. Dishwala? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we were signed around the same time, and sensible thing to do, because they're from Santa Barbara. It would have made sense for us to record in Philly, and those guys mm-hmm. to record mm-hmm. in California. Mm-hmm. But what happened? They flew Dishwala to the East Coast to record at Studio 4 with Phil Niccolo. No. They flew the call fields. No to California to record in Sausalito at the plant. I had no idea Phil Nicolo did that record. That's cool. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, I've been extremely excited about going to Sausalito to, to record at the plant. Did you guys say to them, this is what we want to do? Here's the producer we want to use? Or they were like, this is what you're doing? The producer that we hired, this guy Kevin Maloney, who had, you know, A&M gives you, like, a printout. It's like a three-page printout. Here's the producers that we like. Why don't you pick one or two, and we'll talk to them and see if they are available and da-da-da. So Kevin Maloney kept coming up because, well, from my point of view, I really liked this album that he did. He produced the first Sinead O'Connor album, The Lion and Cobra. That's Kevin. Wow. So he's this Irish dude. Wow. And then came to find out that he was actually the assistant um, on the sessions when U2 recorded Boy, their first album. And I was like, all right, let's talk to this guy. He sounds cool. And we met him, and he's just like the coolest, just, just very kind of like good energy you know, good Irish, Irish. Good Irish energy. Was Ireland, how I, the, the, how I like Ireland, Ireland is one of the most magical places I've ever been. Mm-hmm. One of the greatest people, greatest country, uh, a place that I stepped off the plane. I was like, oh, I feel like I'm home. Mm-hmm. It was a very, I never really felt like that in a, in a foreign country. I don't know if it's because there's so much Irish influence in, in Philadelphia and New York City, like mm-hmm. architecturally. And, and I have this epiphany, which is kind of a silly epiphany to have. And I was in Dingle, and we were in a bar, we were in a pub, and, and there was Irish music playing. And I'm like, oh my god, American folk music is Irish music. <laughs> like that's where it yeah. came from. Uh-huh. And it felt silly to me to like just realize that that moment. But I was like, oh, this completely. I can see the thread drawn from Ireland, all the people who immigrated to the United States, and how this became our music. Mm-hmm. That was fascinating. Or just felt like it just was like, oh, light bulb went off, and I felt like, oh. Yeah, it's it, it's wild, and his energy just like sold all of us right away. It's awesome. And so it was, was he based it was, in Sausalito? No, he just it's like, he just felt like, like recording a, a record in a nice place because it was like when you when when I think back at how much of our advance like went to making this record, 
we recorded it at the plant because he wanted to record it there. We got him his own houseboat to stay there. <laughs> the band had its own band house in a nearby town called Larkspur. And he also kind of insisted that we have like a separate engineer. So we got this guy, Tracy Chisholm, who had done um, the first Belly record. Mm -hmm. Remember them? Mm -hmm. Do I remember them, please? One of my favorites. Amazing record. Um, so there was like all of this like kind of like high dollar stuff going on. But when you walk into the plant, even back then, even it's no longer a studio anymore. Right. But at that point, it had been around for over two decades as a studio, but like built in the early 70s. And the design was very heavily influenced by Sly Stone. It's like any time you hear what records were made at a certain place, you become in awe of it in a way. I mean, not studio especially. I mean, you know, I'm a huge Fleetwood Mac fan, but like in general, yeah. the records made there are all like legendary. Mm -hmm. And so that was such a cool experience. Well, the, the funny thing about it is like when you, so our studio, Studio B, was a little further toward the back. So you walk in the front door and there's this hallway and, you know, we're like, it's our first day and we're wheeling our road cases in this very narrow hallway and all of a sudden they start like wobbling and we're like what the fuck is going on and the guy who was like the the house engineer there he's like oh don't worry about that that's something that's a sly put in he wanted it to be like psychedelic so like he put like bumps in the floor so that like when you're walking in there you're just kind of like going back and forth like you're on some kind of psychedelic I that would really uh, mess with me because you know, I find the studio so tedious and like specific and I find recording really physically draining. I'd be like so you? irritated if it was like we're doing this specifically specifically to mess with you. Yeah. After no. you've like poured your soul out, it's this very draining kind of tedious experience. Well trying to like capture lightning in a bottle and then you're like, why can't I stand up? I don't think I ever saw this part, but he made them put in this special mix room for him that was kind of like sunk into the floor. It's where Stevie wrote Dreams. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I've heard the legends, man. It's wild. But I went back, I did a pilgrimage probably like five years ago. I was out there and my son was with me and weirdly like some friend from his school back here had just moved there. And he's like, can I visit my friend? And I'm like, yeah, where does he live? He's like, he lives in Mill Valley. I'm like, okay. So I drive him up to Mill Valley. And I'm like, wait a minute. I remember that Mill Valley is very close to Sausalito. I want to try to find where the plant is. And like, I was like, what's, what's the address? What's the address? I couldn't remember the address. And I was like looking it up. And of course, when a place is defunct, it's hard to find mm -hmm. the address. And somehow I found it online. It's like 2200 Bridgeway. That's where it is. So I drive out there. It was like part of this industrial park that's right by the water, mm -hmm. weirdly. So... So like a Navy Yard? Like our Navy Yard? Kind of like that, yeah. I mean, Kevin basically could walk like 100 steps from the studio to his houseboat at that point. So I was like driving back there and I'm like, it doesn't look that familiar. And then... 
I saw the place, and it it was like totally overgrown with so nothing's going on in there. Well, it's just... something was going on in there. Like somebody was renting it as like a health and wellness studio of some kind. There's like a little sign outside. I'm like this is weird. But like you're like, there's no health or wellness in here. Like, right. This is a bad <laughs> idea. <laughs> no, very bad idea. Wow. Especially walking around on like warped yeah, like, <laughs> floors. I mean, it probably just got like some kind of a high. I mean, there's got to be cocaine in all the floorboards and all the grooves and all the So crash. much blow. Like yeah. everywhere. Well, when you walk in, when we were recording there, when you walk into the studio, they had, when it first opened in the 70s, they had some kind of big party, like a who's who of rock royalty showed up to this, you know, John Lennon, Yoko Ono, George Harrison, all these people were at this thing, and they gave out these little round wooden um, invitations that were like little yin-yang symbols, and each of them had like who, who the invite was for on them. And they're all just like on the wall when you walk in. Thank you. It's just wild. Like, this is wild, yeah. So, how long were you guys out there? About three and a half months. Now? It took a long time to make a major label record back then when you could We could do it in 10 days now for like a tenth of the price. Oh, absolutely. Well, it's a totally different game. It's a totally, it, you can't even equate those things because I think they're so. No, you can't because the mentality was it's different. It's completely. Like, it's the like, money, the mentality. Like the, they the wanted to spend that much absolutely. money. Absolutely. So, here's a question. I always had fantasies about like going away and making a record because I felt like, okay, if we go away and make a record, our day to day life, like every time I've really recorded, like really been in a studio, studio, mm-hmm. you feel like home recording, but like studio stuff, it was like off hours in New York City. We all had jobs. It was like going exhausting, being exhausted from work or whatever we had done that day. Overnight studio experiences mm-hmm. are. You know, oh, piecing together these. So I've done it. <laughs> so going out there and having that time. Do you think that that made a better album? I Could think you it. Ma- I think it made for a better experience. I well, don't yeah. know if it made for a better album or not. But like the idea of like, okay, we're not worried about where we're going tonight or who's got water, what's mm-hmm. happening. I mean, for me, I feel like it was helpful because I could just focus. Mm-hmm. And there were other things going on with our band during the making of that album that, that if it was happening back at home, it just would have like been too much. Because you know we had a guitar player who was an alcoholic. We were having issues with him being sober during having to play guitar solos. I know all about that. Yeah. I, you know, I, I've been in bands. I know all about that. Yeah. And then there's the everybody, the balance of... I was explaining to people, like, it's like being in a relationship with three other people, and there's a lot of balancing wants, needs, egos. You know, there's so much balance in it, and it's very... It's, it's a hard thing to do. Um, we were also having tension with our drummer, who eventually was asked to leave the band, like, after the record was done. So, <laughs> this is the first major label release. Yeah. So, for me, like, if I had to deal with all that and then go home and have, like, day-to-day life stuff to deal with, it would have been much worse. Because overall, even with all that going on, it was still the experience of a lifetime that I treasured. Right. 
Um, but it was also like the only time, you know, or, or one of the only times in your life where you got to really just sit down and do that without yeah. the distractions of everyday life. Mm -hmm. Without, I better go home and deal with whatever. Whether that be like taking out the trash or a relationship or your parents calling or you know whatever it is. Exactly. Um, and so, so I, I yeah, so the two, the two A and M records, I was able to have that kind of experience. And both both times, it was still fraught with other like really serious heavy crap that was like counterbalancing it so it was never like this dream experience it was always like how do I get through this shit and make a good record right. well I mean with um, Fleetwood Mac like they were all breaking up right. and singing fuck you songs to each other right so but I don't think it's dreamy for anyone I we I mean personally I just romanticize like the 70s as the last gasp of like decadent rock I'm like oh I'm right. so bummed I missed that but <laughs> I'm not a cocaine person, so I right. don't know if I would the have fared well. The cocaine uh, <laughs> in the middle of the soundboard. Yeah. That's all they did, was cocaine. Mm -hmm. That's all anybody did in the 70s, was cocaine. That's what keeps you up. Oh, <laughs> I mean, reading things about people's making records, like, I don't think it ever goes smoothly or as dreamily as you want it to. I think it's right. always a... Again, you're bringing in all these competing egos, these thoughts, these feelings, like, ideas desire to be heard I think my one of my issues as uh, always having been a front person and a guitar player and a songwriter is like I got a bass player over here who wants to turn his amp up all the way and be heard like I you know that was like part of the thing too when I was in a band in my 20s in New York City I was the only girl and it was me and three guys and they dated all of my friends but if I were to talk to a man they would be circling me and like giving him dirty looks I'm like listen this has got to shake out some other way. Is there, what, what do you attribute that to? Some kind of protective mm. thing? Protective brother, mm -hmm. brothery. I mean, we were all very close friends, so. And they just were like, I and up, what do you want, what, you know, what, do you, what are your intentions? And I'm like, I am an adult. <laughs> Stop ruining this for me. <laughs> my drummer actually married one of my good friends. They have since divorced, but they got married. Wow. For a time. Um, all, all of my friends, they dated. And I was like, can you guys just, like, date outside of our circle? <laughs> Please? That's so funny. You know, we're in our 20s. We're in the Lower East Side at the last gasp of... That, that New York life. Now, did you meet those bandmates in New York? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, I had, had a band in college. They were all older than me and graduated. And I didn't want to move to D.C. where one of them was. One of them's here, actually, who got in touch with me and we've been working on some music. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's been a little tricky because he wants to like finish stuff that we didn't finish. Like we had a bunch of demos of us, and I just like can't connect to that. Oh, you mean like songs from, songs yeah. from years ago? Yeah, yeah. So I got to New York City. I got a job at, with a with APA Talent Booking Agency, mm -hmm. working as an assistant for one of the um, agents. And the guy who sat next to me became my drummer, and we have been close friends for twenty years. Um, we played in a band together and then we found other people to be in the band and he and I were kind of always the, the core of it. Do you think you always had like this dual goal as you went along, like be in a band but you also wanted to be in the business side of it well, simultaneously or was one kind of like 
I think I've always wanted to create the art more, mm-hmm. but not coming from a family that could financially support me in New York City, I had to work. And I was like, if right. I'm going to work, I want to work in this industry so I can understand mm-hmm. what's happening. Because, as you and I both know, the music industry was designed to not be friendly to artists and not to be understandable. So I was like, all right, I want to yeah. get in on this. And I'm like, I don't understand what are all these different like roles. Who are these people on your team? Like, what does this mean? What does it mean to be signed to a label? Yeah. So a lot of it was a desire to understand. And, like, I just am so obsessed with music. I, I couldn't fathom being in another industry where my focus of the day wasn't music. You know, when it really drills down to it, my job can be very annoying, and it's still work, and I still sit in front of a computer and ask people and, you know, have a lot of things that I have to figure out. But when it comes down to it, like, I love music, I love musicians. I, you know, I am in that world, and that's what I care about the most, you know? And I want to be... In and around that, it does get frustrating. Being like, what am I doing? Like helping other people's careers. Like, what am I doing? Um, so, yeah, I mean, talk a little more about that. that because, like, do you, I'm sure you must feel at times like, man, I'd rather be writing, you know, writing today or, or working on some songs or yeah. recording something. You know, yeah, I do. Um, I think for the last several years, I felt really like, who am I? Where do I belong? What's going on with me? Yeah. <laughs> So I didn't really know where to write from. Mm-hmm. And I'm still kind of struggling with that. Although I feel like my life has settled down a lot more. I mean, when I moved back, I moved back because my daughter was born and we were living with my parents for a while. So, and then the pandemic hit. So it was like, all right, my life has totally turned upside down. I'm trying to reestablish my business here in Philadelphia, which wasn't challenging at all because I knew Jesse and Jesse started bringing, you know, other people into the, to the fold. Mm-hmm. And, and it really turned out great. Um, because no one really does what I do here in this way. Mm-hmm. Randy Alexander kind of passed away a few years ago. Um, so there isn't like kind of a boutique PR firm that handles music here. So coming into it, I was like, oh, cool. I get to be back in my hometown. And everyone here is a lot more down to earth than they are in New York. Or not necessarily in New York, but like... I know this image of hiring a, a team from New York is it comes with a lot of different expectations not expectations but different feelings I guess mm-hmm. I felt like a lot more disposable in that world I got you whereas here I feel like oh there's an actual community that like is, is trying to like do something whereas you know in New York it often felt like and it, it always feels like this everyone's trying to find the next thing mm. and there's not a lot of loyalty in being from the East Coast and of Mediterranean descent, I'm a loyalist, and I don't like that part of my job. <laughs> I'm a loyalist. Oh my god! I hang out with you know I've had the same friends. I have lots of friends from different eras of my life, but like mm-hmm. once you're in with me, you're in. Yeah. No friends forever, right. unless you do something horrible or. Right. I, mean, I still hang out with people I've known since high school. Those are my closest friends here, my high school friends. Um, yeah. Which has also been a little bit of a challenge. Love them dearly, but I'm like, where are my people? So being more integrated in the scene here has been important to me too, because these are my people. Mm-hmm. So You have a lot of different people. I, I do. I, I think that that's something we share in common, because I think I have, you know, I have people who, like, know me from so many different phases of my life and career and you know they're all part of like a big family to me but you know a lot of times those worlds don't really mesh together yeah totally I feel like that Um, I always feel like that like my high school friends are so removed from my day to day work day which is like (laughs) 
you know, you and I sitting on the couch playing guitars, me fielding texts from clients, right. making sure this interview is going on, making sure this press release is da da da. You know, two of my best friends are teachers, which is a beautiful, wonderful career, although they are getting screwed every which way, but like totally different day to day lives. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And, they, and I think when you're a musician, and I think you'll agree with this, like it's an obsession that like can never be um, quelled or quieted. It's just right. this thing that's you're like, right, this is my it's, main it's mode. It's the drive, yeah. It's the drive, but it's the connection, it's the expression, it's the, mm-hmm. oh, I feel... I don't feel so alone. I, right. This person has articulated. The, I feel all these things. Like when we were just singing, I was like, when we were hitting those courses, I was like, oh, oh, yeah. this, I've been missing this. Mm-hmm. I miss this feeling. No. Okay, we hit these songs that we both love and nailing these courses and, and, and blending our vocals. And I was like, oh, this is the thing I live for. Me too. That's that's the thing. Um, I've always enjoyed like harmonizing with people, and it's. Sometimes it's hard to find somebody who, it like, is hard. It is A, hard. like, just wants to sing the same songs as you, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and B, can actually hit them, yeah. you know? Yeah, I mean, yes. I think my acapella background mm-hmm. um, is something that's always kind of been in there. I didn't sing acapella in high school. I tried out for the group in ninth grade, and the, the director told me that I would be better in the chorus, so, like, I, that was the end of me. That was that. That was it. I was a little... You know, you're 14 is a little soul crushing, and then oh, I imagine. at college, I went to Franklin and Marshall. The first year, I just played in a band, and then the acapella group had seen me play, and they started like knocking on my door, like oh, come okay. and try out. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I got into that group, and all of those people are still my closest friends oh, in the crazy. world. And I talk to them constantly, and they, that's my best friend who lives out in LA, and and mm-hmm. I have uh, one lives in New Jersey, another one, two live in New Jersey, and I see them. Mm-hmm. But we talk to them all the time. Um, one of them lives in Nashville, and she was just up here for a conference. She doesn't work in music. She's a professor at Vanderbilt. Oh, wow. She, call, she, she called me, and she's like, I'm up for a conference in Delaware. I have, like, six hours in LA. Can I come over? I was like, yes. Yeah. Um, and then what does she them, teach? Uh, that's a good question. It's something, like, with math, but it's not math. It's something in education, or math education. I don't know. Okay. Something that I don't necessarily <laughs> fully understand. Uh, and she leads this very funny life, in my opinion. Like, she's always been, I don't know if you have friends like this, I'm sure you do, when they always seem much older than they were when you were kids. When you were like, when we were 19, she acted like she was 30. And I was like, oh, dude, you yes. need to have some fun. So now she's a professor. I was, I was that person. Really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> So this friend is, like, very excited about going gray because she thinks she looks too young and the students don't respect her enough. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> it's very funny um, and hilarious. That is and, very funny. And I mean, I, I've, had, I've had gray hair since I was 14, so I've been coloring my hair since I just I was colored mine this morning. Since 14, yeah. I feel you, man. Yeah. That's so funny. Yeah. She's, like, embracing it. I'm like, this is the worst thing ever. I mean, it. Well, I mean, I, honestly, like, I feel like I was that person at, like, 19 because, like, everyone around me was, like, so... Not everyone, but I was, I was entrenched in a lot of irresponsibility surrounding me, so I've always felt like I had to be the one who was responsible. And I still feel that, but, like, I... At this point in my life, I feel so much more carefree, even though I have many, many, many cares. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I have a lot more fun now than I ever did. Interesting. I'm going to tell my friend that. Call why. her up say, Professor, 
let's have some fun. Uh, yes. And she, she's just a very kind of, um, I want to say uptight, but I don't know if that's the word. Like, she had a hard time letting her guard down and having fun. And once she and I became friends, she was comfortable enough with me that we always had a good time. Mm-hmm. But, like, in certain situations, we're not fun for her because she d- couldn't let let go a little bit. Right. She always struggled with that. And she was from the Midwest and came to Franklin and Marshall and Lancaster, mm-hmm. Pennsylvania, which is mostly, like... Philadelphia, Boston, Baltimore, mm-hmm. D.C. area kids. Yeah, okay. Some Long Island. But that's, you know, there, there were kids from other places, but that was the, kind of the core. So coming to this East Coast mentality from the West Coast, I think was a little, or the Midwest was a little, she was kind of like, what is wrong with these people? These <laughs> happy so cocaine people. I mean, that wasn't my scene, but there was that, you know, right. the lacrosse guys who did coke, and it was like, what is this? So when you realized that music was going to be like a significant thing for you. How old were you? 13. 13? 12, 13 when I started. <laughs> yeah. When I started like having my own music. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had my own music from a, a very young age. When I was six, I got my first cassette, oh, which yeah. was Cindy Lauper, She's So Unusual. Great. And as, that was like the first... <laughs> record that meant something to me yes. was my parents' music, despite the fact that Rob Hazard, who wrote uh, Girl, was my dad's high school uh, classmate. Really? Wow. Eric Basilian's daughter. Eric, was, you know, Eric and Rob. Uh, Eric Basilian's daughter is 10 or 11 years younger than me. We've become friends as adults. We both went to Agnes Irwin. Uh, we became friends oh, no like on the alumni circuit in New York City. <laughs> um, you know, it was recorded here. There's so many, I have so many ties to it that I didn't realize as a kid or just hearing that music for the first time, I didn't really realize how connected that record was to me. And then my, my band in New York, my first band, the bass player in that band, his uncle is best friends with Cindy Lauper. She, he's, the uncle is the godfather to her child. So I met Cindy as an adult with Adam. Adam and I like went backstage. I think it was at the Beacon maybe, like just like rolled in before the show even started, saw her in her makeup chair, and I was like, oh, and Uncle Howard was like, Maggie, you've got stars in your eyes. And I was like, this artist has been so important to me, and yeah. to be in with the people that are her family is like, what is happening? Uh, That's awesome. Yeah, it was really, she's, a, she, the times that I met her, she's been lovely. And that music, like, as a, as a seven-year-old, time after time, like, hit me, like a truck, you know? And I was like, what? I just had to learn how to play time after time because I I got asked to do an in the pocket show oh, yeah. a, a month mm-hmm. ago. And well, he was um, in your band, correct? No. Mm-hmm. He's in the Hooters. He's in the Hooters. But he plays with you frequently, correct? No. He plays with um, a friend of mine, Cliff Hillis. Mm-hmm. Uh, was in Caulfields? No, he was in Ike. Okay. And um, Dave plays in Smash Palace with Cliff and Steve Butler, okay. the, the lead singer guy. Because I had Olivia and Richie on In the Pocket and like tied all that together, um, the Caulfield's connection right on. with Dave and he and sent oh, the two of them the, to on do. The podcast, yeah, yes. yeah, on the podcast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. David has been like a super supportive person and it's kind of funny. We were talking about battles of the bands earlier. Mm-hmm. Um my band before the Caulfields was in a battle of the bands in the 80s where Dave Wissickinen was a judge. And it was this contest called, it was sponsored by Energizer Batteries. And we made it all the way to the national finals. And we lost, we came in second. And I remember Dave coming up to me afterwards and being like, 
nah, man, you guys should have won. It was, it was very obvious you guys were better. And I, I recently found, I was going through just so much of old memorabilia. I recently found, like, an old flyer from that band that had David Wissigan's number from 1987 wow. <laughs> written on it. I never called it, of course, but, you know, here we are in 2022. And I feel now, like you should call it, see what yeah. happens. Um, yeah, I should. Amazing. Maybe I'll do that. But um, when I did my first In the Pocket show, it was a night when several of their main guitar players couldn't be there. <laughs> so I ended up playing on, like, 11 or 12 songs, one of which was Time After Time. Amazing. Uh, ben Arnold on lead vocals. And I was like, it was really cool to like learn these songs that I've known all my life, mm -hmm. enjoyed all my life, but just, you know, I just never, mm -hmm. until the pandemic, I didn't, I was really not the kind of person to like learn yeah. how to play cover songs. Me neither. And, I was much more interested in writing my own. And then I started doing the live streams and I was like learning 10 cover songs mm -hmm. a month or whatever. I and think that really fun. opens up. A lot. I mean, that's been my experience. Even just today, like, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about songwriting because I'm like, I've been away from it. I'm trying to get back to it, but I'm like, what do I have to say? Where do I start? What makes things good? Why do I like this? Um, and my friend, do you know David Poe, singer-songwriter? He's on Epic Records in the oh, 90s. Oh, David Poe? Yeah. Yes. You know, David, David's a very close friend of mine. Oh, wow. and he was just in town, and he was like, you need to write about home, and you also need to learn a bunch of covers to like take them apart and put them back right. together again. I was like, oh, okay. So. And that's that's the thing that sometimes we forget as songwriters is like, you really should turn to the songs you love if you want to be inspired or just know how those cool moments are actually happening. Jeff Tweedy's book, uh, Write One Song, I think is what it's called. I just ordered it, I just started oh, it. Oh no, I've never read it. But it's like a, a songwriting guide, which yeah. I think is fascinating. I'm not a huge Wilco fan, even though, but my dislike for Wilco is completely based on bias that I need to get over. I worked with Sunbolt. Oh. So I was like, I'm on Jason. You were on Jay for But this was like, you Team know, Jay. yeah, this was like 2007. I'm like, okay, I, I think I'm so far past this. I haven't worked with that band in years. Like, I think I can. You're allowed to like Wilco. Like, Jeff, right. I need to go back, and I also had a boyfriend who was really into Summer Teeth, and I was like, I'm never listening to that, because that reminds me of him, so. That is a pretty good record. <laughs> so far in the past, I feel like I can really spend time with Summer Teeth, and it become mine now. Um, but I was, I, I just, I'm just like, how does this thing work? Because it seems so elusive to me, like, like, conceptually, because, like, really what it is, you're just sitting down and just, like, making shit up as you go along. Right. And I was like, I need to have a better practice of like, because every time I sit down and start playing, I start writing. And my problem is I'll write a verse and a chorus and stop. And I'll be like, I don't know what's next. And I, you know, my kid, every single demo I have from the last two years, you'll hear my daughter in the background. <laughs> it's me just be like, give me one second, let me just get this out. So I have like over a hundred Maybe she's snippets. got a few lines she can contribute to, I don't know. Uh, maybe, <laughs> but I think they're mostly like, I am my juice is I need more juice. <laughs> Where's my I juice? have to go to the potty, take me upstairs. I'm like, <laughs> two seconds. Is there like one songwriter or artist that you consider like, I mean, I know you're a big Fleetwood Mac fan. Yes. From a songwriting perspective, are they your gold standard? Are those... To a degree. People always ask me, what's your favorite song? And I'm like, well, what category? Like, yeah. I have so many favorites. Jeff Buckley is a favorite. Jenny Mitchell is a favorite. Sinead O'Connor is a favorite. Jenny Lewis is a contemporary favorite. Uh, Brittany Howard is a contemporary favorite. 
I love locally. I love Jordan Cayola's uh, band Mo Lauda, the, the solo record, mm-hmm. and Mo Lauda and the Humble. Like I think Jordan is an extraordinary songwriter, and I get to work with him, which is so exciting. Um, I love Don McCluskey's songwriting, um, and, and I usually gravitate towards female songwriters mm-hmm. now, as an adult, as a kid that wasn't really offered, right. didn't really exist in my opinion. There wasn't a lot of options. And, and mm-hmm. I look back and I like, think it's like kind of fucked up that it was like in the 80s when I was a little kid, it was like you can like Cindy or you can like Madonna, you can't like them both. Right, because they were pitted against each other. Which is ludicrous. Yeah. As an adult, I look at that like, are you kidding me? So I loved, Cindy was my girl. And then as an in college, uh, Madonna's Ray of Light came out and that changed my yeah. whole perception. I mean, I loved her in A League of Their Own. I loved Truth or Dare, but I found her songs to be like a little too, but they weren't about anything personal. And then when Ray of Light came out, it was the record she wrote after her daughter was born. I was like, oh, and yeah. she did it with William Orbit. So it's this, the, the, the production on it blows my mind. It's these very warm acoustic sounds juxtaposed with these hard, uh, uh, electronic, electronic yeah. things and he mixed them together so beautifully it, you know he had done Beth Orton's record uh, Trailer Park and I was like okay I get Madonna now and I went back and like was embraced the whole catalog and love Madonna I've seen her several times and like pains me to see what she's doing now because like I'm like dude get off Instagram whatever you do stop <laughs> you're Madonna like you are Madonna uh, what do you think of that because I, you, I noticed that like People who, you know, like a Madonna, or people who you think are just in their own stratosphere or whatever, they're all, like, doing social media now, like every other... It's what you have to do. Every other clown out there, you know, like... That's the thing, though, but, like, why do they have to be part of the game at this point, is my question. I think for so many reasons. Um... Number one is they control the narrative. I feel like, you know, the whole reason Donald Trump was on Twitter, and I hate Donald Trump. Mm. I hate his guts. I, I know we're being recorded, so I can't really say what I want to say. No, say what you want to say. <laughs> I can't believe there hasn't been an assassination attempt on him. <laughs> um, it wouldn't solve anything. That's 100% correct. I, I just found it to be like, okay, this seems like we're living this extreme time. Mm-hmm. Why hasn't that happened? Well, when you think about, like... Not advocating for it, no, or I'm not no. going to do it either. FBI, if you're listening. <laughs> I mean, you'd have to go back to, like, John Wilkes Booth. Or, yeah, so or, John Hinckley Jr., yeah. you know about this? No. He's a musician? Oh, no, I did not know that. He just got released. I got a phone call, maybe in the fall, from another client who's a lawyer, who's also an event. He's like, hey, my boss represents John Hinckley Jr. Will you have a... Will you, Oh my God. I had a phone call with them, <laughs> like laid out a whole thing for them, and I was like, here's what I think you need to do if you really want to be taken seriously. And then I was just like, I called my history teacher from high school. I was like, you are never going to believe what I just oh had a phone call with. Oh my God. And my parents were like, you cannot do this. And I was like, all right, I don't, and I talked to some colleagues. I was like, I don't really want, I don't think I could be involved with this. And he's gotten a little press recently because. I was like, here's what's going to happen. People are going to be, this is going to be a gawking situation. People are going to want to come. I know you want to be a serious songwriter. If you want to be a serious songwriter, you got to go in the studio. you got to record this properly. you got to have a real product because mm-hmm. they are only going to come and gawk and they're not going to get into the music. If you have the real thing to give them, that might be a different story. You don't want to do any of that, which is fine. I was just like, <laughs> you need to do all the things if you want to be a real musician. I was like, and the number one thing you need to do is express some remorse. 
and he didn't want to do that or like make a statement. And I was like, eh. so he has booked a he had booked a bunch of club shows, like club dates, and like was getting picked up by like Rolling Stone and Consequence of Sound and places like that because this is fascinating. But wow. many of these shows have gotten canceled. I don't really know if he's played anything. I don't know who he found to book his shows, like, and they're getting canceled because they're just like, this is too. It just became too controversial and too dangerous. I'm a that single is, parent. That is nuts. Yeah. No. You don't, I just didn't you don't, feel like you don't it would need be that. A, yeah, I didn't need to invite energy. that into my life. I'm already like angry enough about the state of the world. I didn't need to invite right. more. No, I hear you. I just live in a state of, and I think this is true for many of my friends, many of the people in my age group. You know, we were sold a bill of lies, like go to college, get a job, your life will be great. You do the thing, blah blah blah. And, and like none of that has panned out and life was supposed to get better and I'm standing here being like uh, my rights are being chipped away I'm afraid for my gay family members I'm afraid for my you know I have two friends who have trans kids I'm afraid for their kids I'm afraid that my child isn't going to have as many rights as I do like what is happening um, I, I, and I find myself you know we're sitting here shooting this shit about music and then I'm going to go home and open up the internet and be like, oh my God, what is happening? You know, so it's like, it's it's this very extreme emotional, yeah. like, upheaval all the time. I think time has felt a lot faster in the past several years and I also feel like, I don't feel like time has been as distinct to me. Like, the 90s, the 80s felt like very distinct time periods. I was born in the late 70s. I have a very specific concept of the 70s. I don't remember shit of it, but... Mm-hmm. You know, there are things that come along with the 70s. I know what the 60s are about. Right. I, I watched, you know, having been a child in the 80s and 90s, the, the people that grew up in the 50s were making nostalgic TV shows about the 50s and 60s. So I have a very right. clear concept of yes. Back to the Future and the Wonder Years and, you know, things like that, about that nostalgia for that time. Whereas, like, I don't, I have a hard time differentiating, like, 2000, 2010, 2010 to, to now as, like, different decades. Yeah. Like, it all kind of feels mushed together. To me, it feels like the era of, September 11th, early aughts, then we hit uh, the Trumpy era, and then we hit the pandemic. Like, to mm-hmm. me, those are those are much more of the mile markers. But it doesn't feel like there's music that fits in those... Like, I can tell you what 80s right. music is. No. Well, maybe... I can tell you some early aughts. I can tell you Interpol and Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs and... Uh, the Strokes. Strokes, Arcade Fire. Like, bands that were kind of happening in that moment mm-hmm. that aren't as much happening now, but I right. don't know what a band from 2011 means like I don't know what that means I think maybe that speaks in part to the proliferation of like internet I was uh, yes I was just gonna say that I think it is about in the 80s I was having this conversation with um, Don McCluskey's uh, bass player slash producer Devin Greenwood we're all kind of talking about this but Devin made this point that really resonated with me that was like during that time everybody was listening to the same songs on the radio everybody was watching the same TV shows there weren't there wasn't know, a million choices. Yeah. yeah. Infinite number of things. Yeah. There were only certain things. So right. we all kind of have this collective experience. I think we were talking about like a Phil Collins song. We were all like, yeah. And we were just talking about how we all kind of grew up in different places, but everybody knew this song and was right. like, yeah, about it. And you knew, you knew things whether you liked them or not. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Know? Whereas like, I cannot tell you what Machine Gun Kelly sounds like. I know he's super popular right now, but I don't know what the music sounds like. Right. And just by looking at him, I'm like, I'm 100% interested. <laughs> Uh, but I can tell you what Olivia Rodrigo sounds like because daughters of friends of mine are really into her. I saw her perform on Saturday Night Live, and I was like, "This girl's got the goods." And then she went to the White House. No, her said, whole record, like the back of my hand. And because she said, "Get vaccinated." I was like, "I like this girl. Bring her back. Bring her yeah. out here." My daughter. So when my daughter is in the car with me, I give her DJing mm-hmm. responsibilities, mm-hmm. and 
it's always a blend of the Taylor Swift's Red album, Olivia Rodrigo, a little bit of Adele, and that's pretty much it. <laughs> okay, I get that. I get that. That's, um, that's a very perfect. So I'm, I'm very. Um, you're, you're well. I'm very well read with. My uncle was making this comment. It's like, there's no more good new music. And I was like, there's tons of it. You just have to know where to find it. That's the problem is the curation and the pre- presentation. Like here, like when I was in college, I would stay up late every Sunday night writing a paper or doing homework and waiting for 120 minutes because I knew Matt Pinfield was going to come on the TV, yep. play me a bunch of videos <coughs> that I was going to like be exposed to and be like, okay, this is cool. I'm into this. Yep. I don't really feel like that curation exists. It does in a certain way, I think, with XPN. I feel like those guys curate a little bit of stuff that I probably wouldn't be privy to, but there's no, like, you know, I'm not, like, in that era, we just had MTV on all the time. Right. And because the audiences are so splintered into their own little micro... Mm -hmm. Micro, 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 micro niche things, it's almost like, you know, I mean, people can curate, but, like, where's the audience for it? Right. You know, so... um, That's what we're missing, I think, in this world. Well, as long as there are people like Maggie Poulos championing artists with their own unique visions and passions, all is not lost. I want to thank Maggie for joining me. Be sure to check out her boutique PR firm, Mixtape Media, at mixtapemedia.com. And uh, maybe soon I can convince her to come play music with me again, like we did when I hosted my most recent open mic night at Align Space in Westchester. We had a blast playing a couple of uh, Stevie Nicks classics, as well as um, my favorite Cheryl Crow song, if it makes you happy. Just a little reminder that if you like this podcast, please, please, please tell a friend because word of mouth is just the bee's knees. What can I say? Okay, my friends, that's all I got for today. Thanks again to Maggie Poulos for joining me, and thank you for listening. I'll catch you next time on Talking at the Diner. Talking at the Diner. Talking at the Diner.